0: All right, here we are. Here we are. Look at you're so excited, Scott. You're hey. like you. He was. Look, he's dancing right now. For those of you
1: who are out in my there, chair, you
0: are. Yeah, I am excited to
1: see you dance in your excited chair. To see you. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh,
0: yes. Science in between. I'm yep. Ollie. I'm Scott. Yes, and here we yeah. are back again. You know. Twenty twenty
1: four, you know, knee deep in twenty twenty four now. It's almost. Like, yeah. Almost one month gone of twenty twenty four.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, however, H- however, however, wait we for are it. wait for it. We are uh, going to talk about something that came out at the end of twenty twenty three that really mm. came out at the end. I mean, I guess it was uh, it was a blog post on education week. And so yeah. I thought this would be a good thing. Somebody shared this with me. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd share it with you all. Uh, which was 10 education studies that you should know about from 2023. It was organized Mm -hmm. by a person called Sarah Sparks, who is a writer for education week. She covers educational research data and the science of learning for education week. That's she's an assistant editor for education week. And so um, someone shared this with me and I was like, Oh, I wonder if this is any, uh, any
1: good. Uh, Like, the actual <laughs>
0: mean, is the research in like yeah. relevant. Like what what is the stuff they talk about? Like what are yeah. the things that they they found? What What does
1: Ed Week think is important?
0: Right, that is really and so it's a you know kind of a uh, it says something, right? I don't yeah. know what it says, but these are the they, they organize ten Sarah, what what Sarah Sparks. Uh, grabbed 10 articles that she thought were really, you know, relevant from 2023. I mean, there's tons of published research from uh 2023 that people could talk about. And what are the ones that she chose to talk about? And so I will say there were two or three dominant themes that came out from my point of view um on this is one, um, the pandemic may be over, but we're still talking about it. You know, because there's um, a handful that like look at learning loss, you know, like whether it's virtual tutoring or how we teach math to help c- catch students up or whatever, or the impacts of mental health because mm-hmm. there are some mental health ones mm-hmm. um, or one that was dealing with like uh people leaving the profession, specifically school leaders leaving the profession. So that mm-hmm. there was a – Bucket. I know this is a list and a bucket. This is like everything. It's not really a list. It's not like the top 10, you know, research articles from 2023 or anything like that. It is just, you
1: know, it sort of is. I mean, in the sense that it's her top 10 list.
0: Right. Well, I don't know. It's she just said here. Here are 10, you know.
1: Well, I mean, to be fair, she says (laughs) she says you should know. So it's not just she didn't just pick ten. She picked ten that she thinks are important enough that we should know about them.
0: Yeah. But here's a look at the uh some of the studies that were most popular from their readers.
1: Oh, so that tells you something. So, this so these is...
0: Yeah, so there's a metric behind this at least. It's not somebody's, you know, these are the ones that were, you know, people read and people
1: shared. Right. You know, so So, lowest uh, common denominator stuff is over. Oh,
0: I don't know. Is that, (laughs) I mean, I don't know.
1: Clickbait. I don't know. What is it that most popular? I
0: don't know. I mean, there are, there, there are popular things that can be high quality. That's true. The highest ranking, uh, the highest earning movies of 2023 in America were Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yeah. Agreed. so, I mean, yeah, they're popular, but they're also really high quality. They've won a ton of awards. Yes, you know, so it's kind of hard to say. Okay, popular necessarily means it's bad. You know, no, no, or, it doesn't mean low, it's bad. But all it low.
1: means is that it's popular. Yeah, it doesn't mean that it's good. Sure. Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. but you, you, you went to lowest common denominator. You, you went there. I you did. Said, yes, it's which, just a math
1: term i know that's how we that's how we don't, add fractions don't try to back Reduce out fractions <laughs> i don't know we do something with fractions with Lowe's don't try
0: there. to back out of your criticism my I'm,
1: friend it, no, you're, i'm not backing out i'm i'm backing in yeah you're like uh, poo-pooing back you it were, up back it in. <laughs> let me begin <laughs> you are
0: absolutely shot out of a cannon over there yeah sorry there, this no it's okay all, all right, right
1: so so where are I, we starting
0: well, I don't know. I mean, the I guess the first one the first one is on the uh, on the article and again we'll share the link is about social media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and they talk about like the connection and this I guess it, you know, it provides some empirical data for something that we all know or anybody who has a, you know, a, a teenager or an adolescent living with them knows that you know some there are some negative impacts of social social media use yeah. whether it's you know using uh facebook or instagram or tiktok or anything um and this was a longitudinal study um that uh appeared in uh in a journal from the national library of medicine hmm. and yes and what they found was that uh, prolonged use of social media more frequent use of so- smartphones and social media is associated with higher rates of mental distress self-harming behavior and suicide among teenagers which again it just you know yeah. confirms what a lot of people believe people who are working with teenagers know how damaging social media can be whether it's from bullying or comparison- comparing themselves or fomo or you know there's just so much negative that comes out of yeah. of using
1: social media you know yeah and and yeah it's it's uh it's it's a big disappointment right in many respects because the the promise of web 2.0 in particular this idea of like we're going to create these these social groups the long tail right you're going to be able to find your people it's going to be you're going to have a community that can support you in your what used to be niche interests um and uh and instead we've we've still do get that which is great so that's the upside is there are those kinds of things like if you're really interested in um you know painting metallic figurines for for role playing games you can find a whole community that does that um but the downside is that if We now have access to all this information to compare ourselves to other people with and and human beings do that. Um, And when you do, especially through social media where people don't tend to share the bad things that happen to them, but only the good things, you feel like, oh, my life is miserable compared to all these other amazing people.
0: Yeah. And I I, beyond that, um, I think that there's also, you know, the communication when people are communicating by themselves and and you know without like actually seeing someone face to face, there there's a different filter that happens. Right? Mm. There's a, things that people post online that they would never say to someone face to face. Yeah. Or there, or yeah. And I I think that distance. Yeah. Right. That distance between the, the person set the social distance that happens between the person sending it and the person receiving it creates all sorts of bad bad results in terms of you know communication. And I, um, yeah, th- I see that as being you know really at the heart of that study there. Yeah. And you know, and yeah. w- we've given students. It's like we've given people this high powered rocket ship without teaching them how to drive it and just saying oh they'll figure it out and what they're doing is running into each other and just causing all sorts of bad havoc, havoc chaos yeah. you know and that we can't put that back in the bottle now we can't put the just to keep throwing mm. more metaphors here we yeah. can't put the that genie back in the bottle now and say, okay, we're just going to collect all the phones and let's have a – although there are people – I've heard this online that there are people who are saying, hey, let's take a, a year off of social media. Let's just shut down social media. That's some someone on one of the you know podcasts I listened to recently said, let's just shut down social media for a year and just let people just cleanse. Hmm. It's like, wow, that is a really interesting idea.
1: Yeah. I mean I, it seems like it would never happen, but it's an interesting no. idea. I mean I do have um, – a colleague here who used to be a postdoc with me, um, who's in Betsy Campbell, who's in, uh, uh, faculty in IST in the college of IST now. And she has been operating since, since sort of the beginning of the pandemic without a mobile phone at all. And, uh, I think she's in the process of, of developing a book to talk about this, but some of the, like, and I know this is more extreme than getting rid of social media, but, um, it, I think one of the things, some of the stories she's told me is how much that has impacted her ability just to function in society. Like, it, it's amazing... You know, we think about how dependent we are on our phones for ourselves and what it does to us, but we've created a society that is also dependent on phones, right? That you you pay for things with phones, you navigate from place to place with phones, You all the information you get for the most part is through your phone, um, or if you're sitting in your house, maybe another computational device. But when you're out in the world, like if you if you, like in State College, if you need a car, if you don't have your own car and you need to go from one place to another, you can't call a cab service anymore on the telephone, like from your home. You can't say, hey, I need a cab to come pick me up because there are no more cabs because Uber put cabs out of business. So yeah. you need a phone to be able to summon a car. And so what do you do now if you don't have a mobile phone? I mean, again, if, you, if you're at your home, you can use a computer, I think. Actually, I don't even know. I assume you can. Hire an Uber through your computer, but maybe you can't. But you also but have to dual authenticate. But how do you dual authenticate? Like everything right.
0: now is yeah. has is to call dual. you
1: on a landline or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah sends, so sends so up this, smoke signals or something. I don't know what you right. do. I mean, this, but this, you know, like these things go both ways, like how deeply these things are getting ingrained into our social lives, make it more and more difficult for us to operate without these things. So there is, it's really fascinating that tension between like the toxicity and the necessity. Right. And, and, uh, boy.
0: Yeah. And, and we are pushing these down. Like, I think I held off buying phones for our children until they were like in middle school. Mm-hmm. I think we we're like 12 or 13. And I know some elementary kids that are now walking around with phones.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and and I think, you know, many parents are having this conversation with their kids um, because if all of your friends have a phone and you don't have a phone, like you become marginalized, you, you, yeah. you don't get to go to the the party because you don't know about it because they're texting about how to go they're not saying it in school to each other they're texting about it or they're you know when when you get to the party everybody's sharing snapchats and you can't do that because you don't have a phone like it, yeah it's it's this it's a fascinating tension that we've you know probably has always been there in one form or another but technology of course as it does with everything accelerates up. and exacerbates it you yeah. know nah, no doubt all right. So I actually want to jump further down the
0: article because yeah. I think that I'd rather stay with a theme. So mm-hmm. this was uh, about child avoidance of anxiety provoking situations in the classroom and teacher accommodation. This is further down. Mm-hmm. And it talks yeah. specifically. It says avoiding academic anxiety can worsen and prolong students fears. Mm hmm. And so what they they looked at, and this is an article that appeared in the Journal of Psychologists and Counselors in Schools. So I wasn't familiar with this journal. Um, mm-hmm. But what they what they looked at were thirty one elementary school students with problematic anxiety, and their teachers,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and found whenever the teachers engaged in more accommodating behaviors. Meaning, like allowing the students to avoid something that created them anxiety, that the students' anxiety actually went up.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: which totally makes sense, right? Because you know this. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that a group of us at at Millersville read. um, mind over monsters yeah. a book by Sarah Rose Cavanaugh and one of the things that one of the big themes that she talks about and actually i'm started I've, I'm going to start one of my classes with this concept is compassionate challenge hmm. you know challenge challenging students and one of the things she she talks about is life is exposure therapy all of life is exposure therapy you know you we know. all have anxiety not I mean, granted, some some folks navigate that differently than others. But we all learn to engage with anxiety by engaging with our anxiety, not by avoiding it. Right. And when you avoid something, it gets worse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was a I'm trying to remember where this movement was. I think it was in the UK. It might have spread into the United States as well, but where they were, you know, developing preschools where essentially they had dangerous stuff around for kids to play with, you know, not like broken glass and things, but <laughs> knives hammers. <laughs> yeah. Knives, hammers, nails, scissors, knives, like, and, and it wasn't like they threw them out there and said, you know, go, you know, try and hurt each other. But what they did say is like, we, this this like cocooning people in bubble wrap as children where they are they're exposed to no risk actually damages you and your ability to operate as as a human being in the world and i think this is a version of that right which is there's this tension between you know protection and resilience that if you protect people too much they can't develop resilience and um and i think that's what this is about is like you you don't know what you're capable of if you're constantly anxious and not able to test yourself to see what you actually are capable of, because in most cases you're more capable than you give yourself credit for.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, I don't engage in therapy. I mean, so I can only like know what's on on television or what others who are in Mm -hmm. therapy say. But one of the things that, you know, I, I, I hear is whenever they say like you're afraid of something, like if you're afraid of heights, it's not like, Hey, well just avoid heights. They say you need to go and put yourself in those situations to learn how to manage yourself with that. And we're doing students a disservice when we're saying, okay, I, I understand you're, you're, you're fearful of public speaking. So let's just figure out other ways that you can, av- av- you know, avoid that. Right. Avoidance just absolutely makes it worse. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause now it's like, Okay, yeah, that is something that we should absolutely. It's so fearful. We should, you know, plan again, and then it just becomes even worse.
1: Yeah, but that said, like it's a nuanced thing, right? I mean, it's not like okay, you're afraid of heights, so we're going to take you up on a mountain on a cliff and have you stand there until you can feel calm, right? Like there, there's processes, there's scaffolding, there's practices that can get you from point A to point B, and that is not, you know, like they um you know what's the exposure therapy is one version and there's but but exposure therapy is gradual right like i'm afraid of spiders so first we're going to show you a picture of a spider and you're going to feel get to be comfortable and then we're going to show you a live spider but it's going to be in a terrarium and then we're going to show you a live spider and it'll be in my hand and then eventually i'm going to put it in your hand and then you know like in that so that sort of um Thing. we're not going to indiana joe if
0: you're afraid of snakes we're not going right. to indiana joe right. and so drop you in a yet. pit of spiders no no right. that's not that's not what we're but you know helping to uh you know gradually scaffold people outside of their anxiety or yeah. rather than just avoid it yeah i thought that was an interesting uh share well,
1: and i think there's a direct analogy into the way that we think not analogy a direct connection into the way that we think again about science teaching right this idea that well, how do you write a good explanation? Well, you write a good explanation by writing a bad explanation and then yeah. making it better. Right. How do you write a good paper if you're an academic? Well, you start by writing a bad paper and then making it better. Right. Like you you can't you can't go right to being perfect um, and everything, every human activity requires scaffolding. Um, so and and all of those. All of those things, everything that you try that's new has some level of anxiety or fear about it, right? When you first do something new, you whether it's playing the piano or learning a language or whatever, there's always on some level some anxiety about, oh, well, am I going to screw this up? Am I going to do a bad job, right? This goes back to other things we've talked about on the podcast about like… Endeavoring to make mistakes being a goal, right? It's all all about this, like building your own resilience in certain areas. And this is just a new area to think about. How it's not a new area; it's one that we haven't explicitly talked about yet. Which is, you know, increasingly students are coming to us with high levels of anxiety. Like I know we're seeing this in higher ed too, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. I know our students come to us and say, "Look, I, I'm sorry, I can't get that assignment, and I have, I have a, a, a you know." aversive anxiety to this and I'm really having a difficult time. This is a thing that's happening, you know, all, all across um, K to 12 and higher ed.
0: Yeah. Well, we talked about that a few weeks ago with the, uh, the Adam Grant book about discomfort. Exactly. How, how you lean into discomfort. And I think what, what a lot of parents and people think about is that, okay, if my, my kid, is uncomfortable with that or creates something, some anxious moment for them that we need to avoid that. Right. And, and that is not the solution. The solution is actually let's lean in.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I think that after, you know, after the pandemic, you know, so many people are trying to protect their kids and say, okay, that it was a scary time. So, but we can't, you know, we can't, avoid all the scary things.
1: All right. Right. Well, and we're, we're, you know, it's not like what we want to say is, oh, if there's a pandemic and you're anxious about getting disease from other people, you should not wear a mask around them or not get, you know, try, try and lean into your, your anxiety. Like anxiety is, uh, an important human emotion. It protects us. Um, so we need it. Uh, we, the goal is not the elimination of anxiety. The goal is, um, to be able to expand our, our, our ability to do challenging things. Um, But the anxiety is always there. You know, it's like a box of tissues. You pull one out, you got a new anxiety to replace it. Um, So it's just changes what you're anxious about.
0: So I'm going to jump to
1: another uh,
0: research paper that is, is related, is, is related because this is something that a lot of people have anxiety around, which is around mathematics. Mm -hmm. And so they did a Mm -hmm. meta analysis of, how we teach math, how people teach math.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And specifically what this article focused on uh, were ones that which they showed solved problems.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they saw that there is an impact if, for those ones that not only showed how the problems were solved correctly, but also ones in which this, they showed problems that were not solved correctly.
1: Mm. Yep
0: that that had a positive impact on student learning right yeah which goes back to it's okay to make mistakes we right. learn from making mistakes and creating environments in where we we learn and grow from the mistakes we make is the cuz one it like showing hey this is the you know a mistake that someone made and here's hmm. the the correct solution that to me i think is you know it's definitely on brand with what we're, we're talking about with science education. We're saying, okay, you know, we make mistakes.
1: Yeah. yeah, And I think, um, you know, showing them that right thinking, normal people may solve this problem in this way. And you may have solved it in this way, but let's look at, at what, what the weaknesses of that solution path are so that you can learn from it. um, So that you don't necessarily take that path because you've learned from it. I mean, I think, The ideal of doing this instead of giving worked problems to kids where there's the right one and there's the wrong ones, you know, again, in science, the way that we would think about it, and maybe they do this in math too, is they have kids solve the problem and then compare solutions, right? I want to see how Ollie solved the problem and how I solved the problem and likely in any given classroom, you're going to get diversity of solution paths and you're also likely to get some that uh, don't lead to the right, well, We don't have right answers in science the same way that math does, but don't lead to the correct answer in the end. Um, But that having that conversation about, oh, why did you do it that way? Well, I did it that way because of this, and here was my thinking. Listening to other people talk through their own reasoning is an incredibly powerful way to learn yourself about um, other pathways that in the future might be productive, right? Didn't work in this instance, but might work in some other instance. And knowing how to do it is really useful. Yeah. I think it, it reinforces what we would think,
0: but it's great to have that empirical data behind it.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. And math, you know, and
0: math and math. Um, I'm going to avoid the uh, artificial intelligence ones. We'll come back to those okay. other because there's two articles. Um the next one further down the line is around extra learning days and how they add up. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say there's a couple of districts in our area who are doing this. It talks it, what it was really focused on was there's a number of schools that are switching to four-day weeks. You know, or had switched yeah. to four day weeks, maybe you know, in the last year or so, where they were saying, okay, we're going to do a virtual day, or we're going to do a, you know, a, a cleanup day. We'll have Wednesdays mm-hmm. be a cleanup day where you know students go Monday and Tuesday. What? And there's let's let, let's call it out. The schools that are doing this, or the districts that are doing this, are usually financially strapped schools. Yeah, schools that are like looking for solutions to say, okay, we can't pay for buses to you know take our students to schools, you know, five days a week. So let's just have them. Participate firstly, or you know, or or even like we don't have the money to heat the schools or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. So those schools, what they looked at were, you know, what is the impact of school calendar on student learning?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Any predictions here? <laughs> I don't know if you read the article, but
1: I didn't read the article, but
0: Uh, sure. I mean, it's, it's all good. You don't have to, because you can absolutely predict what happens in this situation.
1: Longer school days, bad, more school days. Good. Yes.
0: More school days show a larger uh, growth with students. Um, Let me, I'm trying to go back. I have all these windows open. I apologize.
1: Yeah. I, wonder, I mean, it makes me wonder, too, if there's an analogy here, because this is outside of schools. This is something that's happening in the workplace more and more frequently. Right. There are variations on this, but something like, oh, our staff only work for 10 hour days instead of five, eight hour days. Right. And then some of that is virtual and there's other things in there. But this idea of like, well, we're going to have a longer work day and fewer of them. um, I think, you know, I I wonder what the analogy is here for work, whether it, it maps over onto work or doesn't. It'd be interesting to know. But, yeah, I mean, school is a long day for kids, especially little kids. And now if you're going to add to that, if you're going to say, oh, well, you're not there just from, you know, when you get on the bus at 730 until you get home, which is at four we're going to add two hours to that. So you're going to get home at six or you're going to get up, you're going to get up and get on the bus at six. Like, yeah.
0: yeah so they said, uh, that the schools that, uh, over the, well, mathematically the schools that had the five day a week instruction mm-hmm. were had, uh, how did they write this? Um, got nearly two years worth more of additional instruction and it showed up on their performance on tests.
1: Yep. Yep. Again. Yep. Right. I mean, I don't know. It's this, all this, you know, all this stuff. And I know we talk about this all the time, but all this stuff is in a sort of tension, right? It's like, well, so does that mean we should get rid of summer vacation? Because if we had school all summer long, Think about think about the learning gains we would get from that. It's, well, but, but there, are, but, but there are other ways we could structure
0: schools. Yeah, besides, for sure there are. B- besides, you know, taking off every June, July, and August. Yeah, we could say, okay, let's take a month off at at Christmas. Let's take a month off. Sure, year round you know, school. Time
1: to, Lots of places did that, right? For a while, there was a, there right. was a movement yeah. to that. Yeah.
0: And there are other countries that organize school in a much different way than we do.
1: Yep, for sure.
0: And and we both have seen those environments where, you know, I don't know how you've spent some time in in Irish schools, mm-hmm. and so is it radically different than what we do here in America?
1: No, I mean not in terms of school days and school years and things like that. Um, it's pretty pretty similar. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in in some ways that's fascinating that it is similar right i mean i i don't know enough about school around the world to know what how how much this pattern exists but you know my understanding which probably is incorrect because i'm not a scholar of this area but but you know the way that we developed that system of schooling was because students needed to be out in the summer because it we're agrarian right so we, the students worked in the fields and worked in the family farm or whatever during those times. And so if we had school, kids just weren't there. So we just didn't have school. Um, I don't know if that's correct or not. It seems like a perfectly reasonable way to think about how school might've been organized in like the 1800s. But, um, but that's certainly not the case anymore, right? The vast majority of students are not working on the family farm in the summer. They might be working, but they're not working in the farm. So, um, you know, there now that said, I do think there's a lot to be said for the idea of, of spreading out breaks, right. Um, you know, not having one long break and then not very many short breaks. I mean, we see this, uh, you know, in higher ed, one of the, one of the ones we see is the fall and maybe this is K 12, too to some extent, but you know, that stretch from mi- mid to late August until Thanksgiving is a long stretch and people get stressed out and exhausted. And then, and then you come back and you have a very short period of very intense time and then you leave again. And then, you know, in the spring, it's a little more, I don't know, spread out, right. Spring break is sort of intentionally set to be part halfway through the semester. So you sort of get your time, then you take a break and then you get your time and then you, and then you're done um so i think yeah the the relationship between work and break is really important yeah doubt all right so there's a
0: a couple other post pandemic ones that i think are uh worth talking about one's about absenteeism chronic absenteeism two out of three schools nationwide have a high chronic absenteeism mm-hmm. so that uh in comparison to before the pandemic mm-hmm. um But one of the things that they found, and this is another research article that uh, Sarah Sparks shared, was uh, if you want kids in school, build trust with families. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Not not totally surprising, but in the article, they said the schools with higher assessed trust between parents and teachers and a higher parent involvement had six percentage points lower uh, with chronic absentee rates.
1: Yeah, but boy that's got to be a I mean I'm sure that the researchers oh, are yeah. taking this into account but the confounding variable has to be socioeconomic there right? no doubt
0: there I is absolutely yeah there is so much impact from the socioeconomic status I mean when I taught when if I had like a back to school night the classes where you know you could you could track it you could predict sure. like wh- who was going to attend and what students were not not because they didn't care, but they just sometimes didn't have the ability to get there.
1: Yeah, sure. In and all so, sorts of ways. They either work, the transportation difficulties, multi-single family parenting issues. There's so many. I mean, it does talk about in here that the high poverty schools were hardest hit by absenteeism, nearly tripling since the pandemic. So that, you know, I think supports our notion. But um but yeah, I mean, and it's easier to build bridges to families in, in contexts where the teachers have more resources so they can do things like whatever they need to do. Like you have m- many more options as a teacher in a highly resourced school in terms of how you reach out to parents, um, both in terms of how much time you have and just the physical manifestation of the things you might need, right? Like you want to send a letter home or you want to. Whatever you want to do, reach out to people. You have staff to help you contact parents. You have all these things that in in schools that are less well-resourced, those things are either less available or not available, right? School yeah. counselors are another one that come to mind, right? Like there's lots of uh, high-poverty schools that don't have counselors, and then the opposite is or, true in better resource schools.
0: Or they have a counselor that has such yeah. a large caseload that it really is – it under, undermines their ability to, you know, get to know their students and impact them in any meaningful way.
1: Yep.
0: Um, another post-pandemic one was the impact of virtual tutoring, whether virtual tutoring can work or what are some of the ways that research can inform that. Uh, they say uh, shorter, like short sessions, regular sessions and small group sessions are the ones that had the larger, largest impact. Hmm. So that I thought was pretty interesting. So if you could do this in small groups, like one on one, one on two, or something like that, a um, couple m- more often, more regular, and doing it um, for you know twenty minutes a day are the ones yeah. that had had the best impact on student learning.
1: Yeah, so, with the caveat that um, like this was phonics and decoding, right? Sure. So this is this is sort of uh, skill based, very. Um, Absolutely. No, I mean no.
0: It's a good no. It's a good caveat to make sure that you behaviorist
1: behaviorist notions of of learning, right? Which is like breaking these things down into small chunks and and feeding it to kids. So, um, so that kind, you know, my initial reaction to that is that seems like it would work less well in science than it does in in areas skill based, right? Yeah, yeah
0: this is a large study 2000 students in a dozen schools sure but it focused on phonics right, right. and decoding that, right so, a- absolutely important caveat and yeah. context uh contextual information to share but it does sh- it to show that it can be impactful in that context yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see there, the two AI ones, one was related to chat GPT informing the kinds of questions that teachers ask. Uh, so it found that, uh, whenever, uh, teachers use them, um, it could, uh, improve some of the questioning that teachers can write. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there was another one, uh, let's see, did I? Did I make that quest that one up?
1: What's that? I think you did, uh, the,
0: but the questioning one. I mean, maybe I came across it in another another link, because that's not on this. because um, the, the one they, they share actually talks about it from the uh the impacts on students, not on teachers. Mm-hmm. So so this must have been another article I shared. So this one found that there were some issues with using it, um, especially from a plagiarism standpoint, which is again not a uh, not, not a, a surprise. A surprise. Um, yeah, but this, uh, the other one is talking about it from, uh, an educational researcher one where AI could help create more equitable boundaries for school districts.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think that one's interesting and, you know, um, especially cause maybe translating that into thinking about political boundaries, right? Like the, we've had a lot of, um, in this country for the last at least 10 years, gerrymandering talk about the way that we set up districts, voting districts. Um, and this one was about artificial intelligence being used to design attendance zones, which basically are the catchments for individual um, schools so that you could reorganize those attendance zones so that people have at least shorter bus rides. Now, maybe there's other criteria in there. Maybe you want diversity of the school population to be included in that. But starting to think about, can AI help with schools with some of these tasks of organizing? Like I can imagine like scheduling is a big one. I don't know if AI can help with that, but but I'm sure it could or, if you can figure or, out the right algorithms. Or, I mean, there's a host of, and at our university,
0: there is this, uh, like sort of a working group. They're trying to figure out ways that, AI can improve things that we're doing. Mm-hmm. But I think that we're just at the cusp of figuring some of that stuff out.
1: Sure. And, you know, this is one example, but I think there are going to be others as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I mean, and it all goes back to this, this point too, that um, the people who are, there are people involved in this, like when it says AI like a i is a tool that they're using, but people are making choices about what criteria to use, for example, so you know if if you're making these attendance zones, what are you taking into account? Is it bus ride length? is it diversity If it is diversity, what kind of diversity are you including like starting to you know but it forces you to unpack some of that stuff and be self conscious about it but um but I think the one thing that a i has shown that it's good for is. Um, giving us ideas that we may not have initially thought of, right? So it, 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 we may not like those ideas. We may pitch them for all sorts of reasons, but it's good at generating lots of ideas, right? That's one of the things that people talk repeatedly about chat GPT, like give me 10 ideas for a business. That's a stationary store and it gives you 10 ideas. And then you say, well, give me idea two and three together and make that into something that includes part of idea five and, give me a new version of it and that sort of ideation um I, ai seems to be really good at so thinking about how it might be useful for solving more systemic problems i think is really interesting can we imagine i mean like i said it would be interesting to see in some of these places where there's chronic g- gerrymandering what kind of what kind of um zone what kind of political boundaries does ai draw if you give it a set of criteria yeah and what would be the the impacts or the the way that people would mm. respond to that. Yeah, I mean, so that, it feels like it has, you know, I mean, this is the, this is the sort of tricky bit about AI is it can feel um, like it is more objective. Right. And this is one of the, we've talked about this. That, a long that's that's ago. a, that's a bias
0: on our end. Like Correct. thinking that just because a computer generated it, that it, it's
1: an unbiased approach, yeah. but it's, there's bias built into it. Yeah, because, I mean uh, it's the same as we talk about in research. That's that's quantitative, and they say, yeah. "Oh, well, because it's quantitative, it's objective." Well, no. no, no, because it's quantitative, it's in number form, which means that the the subjectivity is baked into the numbers. That doesn't mean it's not there. It just means it's well disguised. Yeah,
0: and because it's more disguised, then it's it, we we accept it a little bit better. And it's like, hold on, right. you should accept it more for those of us who just here's our bias right out here. Like, here it is. This is the kind of work. We're going to tell you what it is. This is it. Whereas the other, there's the assumption that there's no bias. There's a slew of it. It's just not transparent at all.
1: Right. And it's it's becoming even more true with AI in the sense that now, you know, like when we look at ChatGPT and some of these large language models, we don't even know what the rules are. Like, it's making its own rules. And there's so many of them that we can't even track what the rules are. So it's no longer the case that we can even figure out where that what that bias is and where it's coming from, because it's just chugging through all this human language to make up rules. Um, so, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, but I do think it feels like there's a lot of potential to help us, again, generate new ideas about things like it doesn't mean that we have to take all those ideas, but helping us think up new ideas is is. um you know, it's, it's clearly a a tool that it is well-designed for that.
0: The last article that's on the list that we haven't talked about was the gender gap in Mm -hmm. superintendents and how superintendents are leaving the profession. This is another one from, uh, ed researcher, educational Mm -hmm. researcher. And this is uh, a pretty recent article. Um, and it looked at, uh, the rate at which, Schools are led by uh, a female superintendent versus a, a male superintendent. And then said that, um, that even though schools, three quarters of teachers are female and 56 percent of principals are women, the chances that it is led by like a superintendent that's a female is very, very low. Yeah. And they said, the the way they they talk about it in the ed, uh, educational week article is they said there are just as likely for a man to be named one of fifteen names like Michael David James Jeff Robert and so on yeah. as it is that there would be a a woman at the helm. Yeah. So those fifteen names. Yeah. Which which is you know pretty interesting.
1: It is. Yeah, yeah. and I mean. Um, Again, it's not saying anything we don't already know, no, not a surprise. Um, I mean, I think the interesting thing that they point out here that's a little bit of a nuance is they're saying, you know, and I think we all know this. Those of us who are in education know this is that superintendents have have become more and more um, short term. Right. Like yeah. when we when we were in high school and before that, like superintendents would come and they would stay for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, it, it's sort of like university presidents used to be very, you know, they were very stable folks. Typically, they would take the job and it was sort of a career job for most people. That is not the case at all anymore. So superintendents are turning over. But there, what the article points out is, though, even though that there is increased churn, that hasn't opened up opportunity for women. So right? they're yeah. They tend to be just replaced with men, more men. Yes. So even though
0: the education field is dominated by women, yeah. Right. That just in terms of like you know, you go to elementary schools, you go to middle schools, you go to high schools. Most of the teachers are, are women. Yes. Mo- yet most of the leadership are men. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah. Again, so they're not a surprise, but not a but. surprise,
0: but. I mean, it just it provides evidence, provides empirical evidence, evidence to what a lot of us already believe.
1: Yeah. But I think it also, um, you know, the interesting thing for me about a lot of this stuff is that, you know, when we talk about equity, um, that we can't talk about individual um, bias. I mean, we can. I, I shouldn't say we can't talk about it, but that's not the prime tool for making change in terms of equity. We need to change the systems because if we, if we just say like, okay, we're going to give all the, all the men who are, who are running these school districts anti-bias training. So they stop having bias against women and minority candidates for things that isn't going to change the system no because the system is, is built much more at a much more foundational level to move people like you and I into leadership positions. So if we want that to stop, if we want to change that, we have to really fundamentally change the system. It's not, it's not about the language we use to talk to each other. It's not about our individual bias. It's not about whether we're good people as individuals or not. We have to work on the system problem and that is a bigger lift. And, uh, and I think, you know, sometimes we get distracted with the other pieces and, and we don't change the system, and then we look at at studies like this, and we say, "Oh, what's going on here?" It's like we've had, you know, decades of anti bias training and and trying to improve equity in places, and here's what we have: we still have the vast majority of superintendents that leave their positions are replaced by men. So we got to change something more fundamental. There's got to be a system shift here that that we think about. And what is it that is? You know, there, there's the old saying that the system produces the outcome that it's expected to produce. Well, then we have to look at the system and and change it so that it produces a different outcome. Agreed. Yeah. So that's uh, 10, 10 articles. 10 out of 10. 10 popular articles. I give it 10 out of 10. <laughs> would would try. Would try. Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't know. Like, I. I don't know education week. It's not something I go to a lot, but somebody, somebody shared this as something that was um, interesting to them. And
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I think anytime we could talk about research, I I enjoy.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh it's a survey of, you know, I mean, I think it, it doesn't, in many respects, it doesn't help us think about how to do anything differently, but it does confirm some of our understandings of how things are currently going. I wonder if we went to, uh, like, like JARST or... Mm-hmm. Journal of you know, Research and Science Teaching. Just yes, for those for for uh, of you. Yes. At home.
0: Uh, but if we went to that and said, what were the most popular articles from 2023, whether mm-hmm. we could get that metric and talk about those. Yeah. Just I don't really, know if they
1: have that, but it could be. Most downloaded would, articles.
0: Yeah, I would know. think. That could, yeah. be a, that could be something to check out down the road. Um, yeah. Because I think that this the one part about this is it's just a huge smattering of you know different content area where it's like
1: it. it yeah. It, there's well, a the, lot here. The audience for this. I mean, Ed Week, the audience is not necessarily even education researchers, right? So this is practitioners. This is, this is folks like superintendents and um, folks in the field of education who aren't necessarily, I mean, researchers read it too, I think um, to sort of get a lay of the land, but for the most part researchers look at journals um so Ed Week is um is a more popular sort of popular press outlet let's just say
0: but i think doing that for jarst or one of the yeah. other science education science journals, education. journals would, yeah. would give us a better sense of what what is what are the popular things or the things that are that people are interested in in our community
1: yeah for sure and i think it would also my sense is, well, maybe I'm wrong about this, but my sense is that there would be more um, depth to what we'd be talking about because the because the article itself would be more focused, right? I mean, things like, uh, well, maybe that's not fair. No, the, the
0: articles themselves are focused. I think it's just the the nature of this is an article. This is a blog post of ten different ones, and had we, like, I read. Read a handful of these. I didn't th- read through all of them. Mm-hmm. I was ma- mainly looking into abstracts and and getting a sense of what the methodology were for the different ones. But for the most part, we didn't engage deeply with these. Yeah. But I'm sure someone is, you know, someone from ed, the Ed leadership community is probably going, yeah, that glass uh, ceilings article is pretty eye opening because it, I mean, it's a in a, an, a journal of note. Yeah, ed research ed researchers is, is is something that is it's it's not lightweight. It's, it's difficult to get an
1: article in there.
0: No doubt, no yeah. doubt. And so it the has fact to be that high quality. Rachel White is the only like author of that. So that's it. That's a, Some work for her. Good yeah. for her. Bravo, Rachel White.
1: Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah.
0: yeah nice work. That's a that's a career goal right there yeah. for most people working in educational research to be able to have something of that, you know, renown.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good for yeah. Her. Yeah, Yes. Good for her. Yeah. All right. Let's so what two brings two. you joy besides, I mean, cause you don't have an article in ed research. Really I do not.
0: Year. I don't know. Or, yeah, or any year, any year. How about you ever? No, mm. yes. No,
1: no, sir. Oh. i have not. Uh, Maybe someday. that's hashtag life cool.
0: Yeah, 2024. Let's do that. Bucket list. Hey, yeah. it's buckets. Back <laughs> to buckets. Yes, you love the buckets and the list. All right, <laughs> so I'm going to give a very specific, very specific joy.
1: Okay. Hi. Right? So specific so, in the sense like other people can't share it.
0: No, lots of people, but it's like it is. I don't know how it's going to resonate with lots of people, but I see it's a very specific thing that uh, solves a very specific problem. Okay.
1: Right? Okay.
0: So. My son drives a 2008 Mazda. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm sure you grew up with beaters. I have a, yeah. So when I was in high school, I drove a car that was 17, 18 years older than me. And Mm -hmm. so my son has a, you know, a car that's, what's that? 16 years older than, you know, 16 year old car. And so uh, one of the things that happened with his car were the headlights, were kinda like like really foggy. Oh, and okay. and so they couldn't project really well. Yeah. And I when I got the car detailed for him, you know, just about a year or so ago, I asked the person, I said, Hey, is there a way we can improve the the headlight headlights here? Oh, we'd have to remove the headlamps and replace them and quoted like hundreds of dollars Yeah, to have this replaced and fixed. And I was like, eh, so I'm watching, I'm watching television recently and there was a commercial and it was one of those commercials where once you start watching the commercial, then you're like, see it all the time. Uh-huh. And so it was a commercial for a product called Saracote. And okay. it was, okay, Cerakote, C-E-R-A-K-O-T-E, Cerakote. Okay. And it was headlight restoration oh. for $17. Oh, right all in
1: right. your price range. Okay.
0: I'm like seventeen dollars. My son's
1: safety is worth seventeen dollars.
0: Well, I, I, I'm thinking, how it's a low investment. How good can it possibly work for seventeen dollars? And it it can't make it worse.
1: No. Well, I guess it could, but I guess it could.
0: It could just totally. It's like like a
1: blackout. Sure.
0: Like, wait, what happened? But I will say, I was astonished at how well it worked. Wow. Okay. Astonished. I took pictures before and after just to be able to let go. Okay. Does this really like happen? You're going to review
1: this on Amazon now? Uh, well,
0: I've, I've thought about it be because I, I, no, I don't, I'm, I'm not that guy. Yeah. However, oh, this true. could be a product that I would review because I was blown away by it almost immediately. Okay. So it's a three step process that involves cleaning and sanding and then doing this thing. And Mm -hmm. it really it's astonishing how well it works.
1: Okay. Yeah. And it's all kinds of headlights. Does it, does it,
0: I don't, I'm not an expert. I've used it once, (laughs) but I will say based on my one. If you
1: have a Mazda from 2008, this is the product for you. If
0: you have a, an older car in which the headlights are foggy and you're like, how do I fix this? Spend $17 and at least try it. Mm-hmm. Cause I was blown away by how well it worked. And it is it, my, my son's like, yeah, you know, now driving at night, I can see further. I can see better. It's mm-hmm. like awesome for $17. Okay.
1: So welcome to the home shopping network. <laughs> <all of you. laughs>
0: I know. I said it was very specific. I, I yep. prefaced
1: it. You did. Uh, very specific. You did very specific. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. I like it. So seventeen dollars. Okay. There'll, aff- there'll be an affiliate link in the show notes so that you can click <laughs> <look laughs> yes. through to Amazon and we can make. I think 80. it's actually on Amazon. 101%. I think it's
0: eighteen dollars. So 18. oh wow.
1: Yeah. Okay. But
0: I I bought it at a store. I went to a
1: oh like a hu- yeah. like a like a brick and mortar like store. where yes. Human beings were.
0: I went to a, a store and hmm. I said, you know, I walked by it. And I said, Hold on. That is the product. It was on an end cap of a store. I was like, that's the product. I would I didn't go actually to buy this.
1: Yeah. But sure, I, of course I, not. Nobody no. goes out looking for that.
0: Yeah, it wasn't one of those things where uh, today I'm gonna fix my headlight. Yeah. No, no. No. That wasn't that day. But I just walked by it and I said, Hey, there's that thing I've seen a hundred commercials on. I wonder if it works. And, and it's the answer is $17. And the answer's got Yes, it does. Yes, it, it does. It,
1: work. it works just fine. It works just fine for seventeen dollars. <laughs> yes. All right. What about you? Joy for you, my friend. I don't. I. I well, actually, <laughs> you can buy this thing, and you can buy it on Amazon. So maybe, maybe this is becoming the home shopping network. But this is a book. Um, this is a book that I. I admit that I'm not quite done with, but I'm very close, and I've been. It's uh, I've I've one of those books. It was probably the holidays too, because. That lets you read a little faster, but I went through this one pretty fast. It is called Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. Bardugo, Bardugo, yeah, Lee Bardugo. So you may know her from Shadow and Bone. Um, and if you don't, uh, that was a series. Uh, I think it was three books in the end, and was made into a, a television series, which I think was on Netflix. Um, that was quite popular, Shadow and Bone. But this. Um, So it's fantasy. Um, It's set at Yale University. And the premise of it is the the eight, what they call the eight houses of the veil, which are the original sort of um, clubs that were established at Yale, like Skull and Bones being the most famous one that you've probably all heard of. But all of these different clubs have a uh, like a magical specialty and then there's this ninth house which is where the title of the book comes from um whose job it is is to sort of police the other eight houses to make sure that they're not there's not bad things happening that they're not doing damage to um sort of ordinary people or there's not stuff escaping into the world that's causing problems so um so that's the the uber premise of the book and I I won't tell you too much about it but it's it's got a Harry Potter sort of vibe to it in that sense that it's sort of magic mixed with school um and the the protagonist Alex is this young woman who comes in from California and is working in this ninth house um and she's got you know some of the Harry Potter sort of you know all the all this extracurricular stuff that's going on plus she's still in school and so there's all those tensions and um, but it's definitely much more adult than that. So this is not a, this is not a YA book. This is an adult book. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I've been really enjoying it. It's, it's dark. Um, it's like I said, it's not a YA book. This is, um, pretty, you know, pretty intense stuff in, in spots. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I think it's well-written. It's got a, it's like a mystery wrapped into the middle of this. So, um, so it's, yeah, it's it's a fun read, and it'll certainly keep the pages turning. Is it part of a series? I believe that it is. Um, I should double check. I don't know. Creator of Shadow and Bone. Um, I don't know. This one came out. When did it come out? It came out in, I'm looking at the thing, 2019. So my guess is that there is another one, but...
0: Yeah, or it's about
1: time for them to release it. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know for sure. I can look here under. I Goodreads is uh, thanks to you, of course, is my, uh, is my go-to for. Actually, I think I was on Goodreads before that, but I've moved more actively into it of late. Are we friends um, on Goodreads? Because I think we should be. If we're not, uh, we should be. Yes. Because um, we're like friends says, IRL. Oh yeah. Alex Stern um we are our friends IRL. Yes, this is actually this is what triggered me reading this one is because Hellbent, which is the second book in the series, was just released. It was published in 2023 and I saw that come out and um and that was on the top of Goodreads like everybody read it list. Sure. So, I went and looked for the original in the series which is Ninth House and so I'm reading that and I'm presuming if I can get my hands on it I'll read Hellbent next. Um, But she's got, you know, as is typical of of um, fantasy novel people, uh, she's got, you know, Shadow and Bone, one, two, three. She's got Six of Crows, multiple books. She's got King of Scars, multiple books. And this is called Alex Stern. So Alex Stern is this young woman who comes from. California to Yale, and so this, the second one of these just came out. So,
0: so the Alex Alex Stern series.
1: Yep, it's Alex Stern one and two. So Hellbent is the second one. Ninth House is the. There's
0: got to be a third. These things come in for threes. sure. They
1: always come in threes. Yeah. Um. So yes, expect a third book. But it if she's if she stays on her current uh public publication uh, track, it looks like 2019. Oh no, she's. She snuck in one in between. She snuck in. She had two come out in in twenty nineteen. Uh, King of Scars one and Alex Stern number one, and then uh, and then King of Scars number two came out in twenty twenty one, followed by Alex Stern number two. So she's overlapping her series. Look at look at that. That's impressive. Um, and for
0: people who write, yeah, that is that's amazing. That, that yeah. is really impressive. Well, she
1: did go to Yale, so. Maybe this Alex Stern thing is easy for her because she's just writing about her own experience. I doubt it's easy. None of it's easy, dude. No, no. Writing, you and I both know. Absolutely. We do. Writing not easy. Yes.
0: Well, on that note,
1: on that note, <laughs> we will
0: catch you next time.
1: In between. See you then. Bye now. <laughs>